What's up, everybody? Welcome to Celluloid Fever Dreams, episode 34, part 7 of our Dollar Tree Movie Find series. As always, I'm your host, the late, the great, the overweight, Wyndham Jennings. This week, we're going to be talking about Blue Iguana, released in August of 2018 here in the United States. It's another British heist film. Now, uh, just to be clear, for those of you listening, the name of the film is Blue Iguana. It is not The Blue Iguana, which came out in 1988, nor is it Dancing at the Blue Iguana, which came out in the year 2000, nor is it the upcoming film Blue Iguana, which comes out, I think, spring of next year. This is the third and, to date, uh, last film by director, writer, producer Hadi Hajay, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. His other two being Clean Skin and Puritan. Uh, however, looking at his record, it does appear that there seems to be a stretch of several years between each one of his films, so we should be hearing something from him if he holds true to form uh, either this year or next year. The elevator pitch for the film can be summed up as the following. A London solicitor comes to the United States to get two men on parole to follow her back to pull off a heist to help her pay off a debt to a gangster. Of course, things go wrong and they find themselves in deeper trouble and having to pull off an even bigger heist in order to uh, set things right. Uh, now, much like uh, the previous film we covered, uh, Kill Me Three Times, this one was also inspired by uh, 80s crime films or uh, action films from that decade. The uh, director, uh, Hadi, has said in interviews that he was inspired mostly by the films uh, Something Wild, which had uh, Melanie Griffith and uh, Jeff Daniels in it, if I remember right, Breathless, which is one of Richard Gere's early films, and uh, Miami Blues, which has uh, Alec Baldwin in it. And uh, I believe it was Jennifer Jason Lee in that film as well. Uh, as I said before, the uh, director, writer, producer, uh, Hajay, or Hajai, Hajay? Uh, I'm going with Hajai. But he said in uh, interviews that he was inspired by the 80s and he wanted to do, do a type of film that had uh, the quirky characters, the outrageous situations, the uh, style of those type of films. Ones where, uh, in his own words, the plot wasn't as important as uh, the humor of it and the uh, characters and their quirks kind of drove the story. And he also wanted an unconventional romance. Yeah, and for the most part, these type of films kind of work on on that. You need uh, memorable characters. You need sort of absurd situations. A uh, little sprinkling of dark humor throughout them. A little bit of the violence. Uh, and you need a good, uh, well-thought-out crime at the middle of it. A plan. Some sort of heist to uh, help drive everything forward and get these characters into each other's orbits. And you need it to go wrong. You know, to me, those are all the elements that make movies like this fun to watch. Uh, you know, it's what made uh, Kill Me Three Times fun to watch when I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Blue Iguana, though, uh, I, I know, let's dive a little bit deeper into it. The story kicks off with Eddie and Paul, who are working at a diner in New York City as part of their parole. For what exactly, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think it ever comes up in the movie. But uh, in strolls Catherine, a solicitor from uh, London, who informs them that their friend British Tommy, who's the only contact she has in the criminal underworld, has suggested the two of them to help her out with a job she needs done in London. They uh, haggle a little bit over price, you know, what she's going to pay them to pull this job off, and then have to turn it, turn it down since they can't leave the country because they're on parole. This follows with her blackmailing their employer 
in order to get him to cover for them so she can fly them to London to pull this job off. Now, now here's the thing. Eddie is played by Sam Rockwell. Uh, I've been a Sam fan. Yeah, I have been a fan of Sam Rockwell. I swear I can speak English for a while, uh, and he's been acting a lot longer than I even realized he he has been. His first role was in the TV movie Joan Crawford's Children, all the way back in 1979. His first feature film was uh, the slasher horror film Clown House. Uh, he's been a ton of work though: Safe Men, The Green Mile, uh, Galaxy Quest, Charlie's Angels, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, Choke. Seven Psychopaths, uh, a couple of my favorite films by him, a little bit, uh, a couple of indie films he did that I like, uh, Better Living Through Chemistry and uh, Don Verdeen, or some movies you hadn't checked them out. They're probably, probably going to wind up future episodes of this. Uh, and he also starred in Moon, which is, to me, one of the best roles he's ever done, one of the best films he's ever done. Uh, and Paul is played by Ben Schwartz. Uh, probably Schwartz's biggest role, the role I remembered him from, the first one popped in my head when I saw him in the film, is uh, John, Rolf, John Ralphio, John Ralphio from uh, Parks and Recreation. That's a hard name to say. He's uh, also voiced uh, Dewey Duck in the new DuckTales cartoons. Uh, he's the voice of Sonic the Hedgehog. He started out as a writer uh, on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. He's also written for Sarah Silverman Show. He's had other appearances in things like Arrested Development, uh, The Other Guys, he did. Uh, he had a part in Better Living Through Chemistry with Sam Rockwell. Uh, Catherine is Phoebe Fox, and this is the first movie I can remember. Well, this is the first role I can ever remember seeing her in. Uh, she doesn't have a very deep uh, IMDb page. Her first acting role was in One Day. Uh, she's also appeared in episodes of Black Mirror. Uh, she's in the Woman in Black sequel. Uh, most more recently, she appeared in the Amazon Prime film *The Aeronauts* with uh, Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones. Uh, she's also uh, she's also had a role in the uh, L. Fanning and Nicholas Holt TV series *The Great*, which follows the life of Catherine the Great. Uh, once in London, she manages to uh, put the band together. Pretty much, we get Eddie, Paul, British Tommy, and uh, another character who's the driver the group and whose name I didn't even bother writing down because that basically seems to be his whole function in the story is he's the driver and uh, when they set up their second heist in order to uh, get revenge against the guy who who's uh, trying to double cross them uh, he serves as lookout I, I mean honestly there's a couple of moments where he talks about he's a failed actor and it was down to him and Elijah Wood in The Hobbit I mean in uh, Lord of the Rings to play uh, Frodo and that's pretty much it. That's the whole character. There's not really a whole lot uh, to him. Uh, the heist goes wrong, and I actually do like the way the heist goes goes wrong in that uh, they confront the uh, the guys they're supposed to be robbing, and it's uh, $800,000 in bearer bonds they're trying to steal. And when, he, when uh, Paul tells the guy to kick the bag over to him, he kicks it, and it barely moves which uh, just got a little chuckle out of me because you see so many of these movies, no matter what's in the bag, just a light tap will send it flying all the way to the other end of the room. And uh, when Paul goes down to pick it up, that's when all hell breaks loose. Uh, and a little bit of a darkly comic moment as you're expecting this big action sequence as the guy's being chased through a museum and he makes a leap, grabs a rope hanging from a pulley, and there's no weight on the other end, so he just plummets to his death. And, uh, you know, that's where everything starts to go wrong for our, our little group. Uh, Tommy is played by Al Weaver. Uh, his first role was in the kids' show, uh, Bram. 
He's also appeared in the films Doom, uh, Marie Antoinette with um, uh, Kirsten Dunst. Uh, he's also appeared in the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch version of Sherlock, the uh, Kira Knightley film Colette, and the film Press and Peterloo. And, uh, oh, I just realized I didn't give you guys the tagline for the film. I actually do like this one. Mullets, bullets, and one gem of a heist. And it's a pretty appropriate time to mention mullets as uh, we're shortly introduced to Deacon, who is a, a low-level lieutenant in a, the criminal organization run by the gangster that Catherine owes money to. Deacon also runs the local bar. Well, pardon. Deacon also runs the local pub, though it's actually owned by his mother, Dawn, who is not ashamed in front of his friends and the customers to constantly belittle, belittle everything about him, including his clothing choices, which seems to be 95% denim, and his haircut, which is a mullet, and which he wears in honor of his father, who he considers the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, Deacon is played by Peter Ferdinando, who, honest to God, uh, disappears, it seems like, into every role he plays. Uh, I looked him up, and I saw some of the films he's been in, and I've seen some of them, but Honestly, he I, I didn't recognize him uh, in this role. I don't know if that says something to him or to the uh, costumers for each of these films. But yeah, he, he's a, a pretty eclectic actor, a really good character actor. I, I was surprised by how many films I've seen with him in it. His first, uh, first role was in the uh, film screenplay. Uh, he's also had roles in Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, an appearance in Doctor Who, which, I mean, he's a British actor. I think you're contractually obligated to appear in an episode of Doctor Who at some point. Uh, he also had an appearance in High Rise. Okay, I just watched a movie a couple of weeks ago with this guy in it and had to go back and look at stills from the film to find him. I mean, that, that's, that says a whole lot to me about what kind of actor he is and how he disappears into a role. Uh, he also had appearance, also had roles in Ghost in the Shell, uh, Hyena, uh, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, which I believe is the most recent uh, telling of that legend, the one done by Guy Ritchie. Uh, and he also had, also had a role in A Field in England, uh, another Ben Wheatley film alongside High Rise, and one that I want to watch and probably talk about in a future episode. Uh, his mother, Dawn, is played by Amanda Donahoe, who got her start all the way back in 1981 in an Adam and the Ants video. Uh, and if you're wondering who Adam and the Ants are, a uh, new wave British pop band, uh, makeup on the guys, uh, you know, neon clothing, spiked hair. Actually, really liked uh, some of their music. Uh, probably the one song that comes to my mind whenever I hear Adam and the Ants is uh, "Goody Two Shoes." Uh, she also had also had an early appearance. One of her early jobs is in the uh, star quality TV movie. Uh, over on this side of the pond, she's probably best known for roles in. L.A. Law, uh, Liar Liar, opposite Jim Carrey, and the uh, film The Lair of the White Worm. Uh, and honestly, I got to say, I think Deacon is one of my favorite characters in the film. And uh, Peter Ferdinando, it's so easy, especially in the interactions between Deacon and Dawn, to see Deacon as a joke. Uh, you know, the way she, uh, she belittles him, the way he dresses. Uh, you know, he's got that sort of, you know, super uh, masculine, macho attitude to him. But no, Peter makes him, like I said, I think he is probably my favorite character in the film because he can go from being goofy to deadly in just like a snap. You know, there's a, a scene where he's forced to, in order to 
cover up the fact that he's working against uh, the mobster and that he's trying to get make it look like Catherine's working against him in order to cover his tracks. He has to actually kill a couple of his friends. And like up to this point, you kind of see him as a little bit of a joke. But it's just, just in that one scene where he comes in and he's all buddy-buddy and he's like, oh, no, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to uh, see that you could get the uh, you know, medical attention you need and whatever. And to go from that to pulling the gun and just cold-bloodedly taking both of them out, it, it's just amazing. It, it's one of the best acted scenes in the film and kind of cemented uh, Deacon as my favorite character and, and just blew me away, uh, you know, Peter Ferdinando's ability given the script and, and uh, you know, what he was required to do in it. Yeah, for for being the uh, you know for being the antagonist of the movie, you know that you know basically being the the primary antagonist of the movie, he's probably the most well developed out of all the characters in the script. And there's some scenes near the end of the film between him and uh, Dawn, and honestly, Peter and Amanda in those scenes uh, is it, just amazing. You can just see so much of the history between them and uh, how they reach this point and what they feel about each other. And so much of it isn't in what they're saying, but just in their attitudes toward each other, the way they're saying it, the looks they're giving each other. Honestly, it, if you, if you, for no other reason than just see Deacon in this movie, it's worth seeing this movie, in my opinion. But Deacon basically sabotages uh, Phoebe's attempts to get out from underneath the thumb of the gangster that she owes money to which causes her to blackmail Eddie and Paul and into another job, and they rope Tommy and the driver guy into it as well. And they're going to go. She finds out about the uh, blue iguana, which is a huge blue diamond that was given to a uh, princess and her, her by her husband as a gift, and they split up and they got back together, and then she loses it in a card game, so Deacon and this gangster are trying to steal it from the guy she lost it to to give it back to her to get this huge reward. And so Phoebe comes up with the idea of stealing the diamond and, of course, Eddie uh, being a criminal and, and being the one in the film that seems to be able to plan uh, as, as well, if not maybe a little better at times, than Phoebe is uh, the one who says, no, we don't need to steal it from the guy she lost it to. We just need to find out when Deacon's going to steal it and then we just steal it from him. And so we're treated to them having to move into an apartment together across from the pub and doing surveillance. And it's a lot of really cool sort of moments as they're doing the surveillance, as uh, Eddie tries to tail Deacon and his friends to a bar and as an American encounters cockney rhyming slang for the first time, which causes, uh, you know, so he has no idea what they're planning or what's going on. So Tommy has to bring in his uncle and some of his uncle's uh, friends who know this stuff and, and uh, I believe are, are career criminals themselves. And it's a, probably one of the funniest scenes in the film is they're reporting back what they overheard. And you have these very proper sounding uh, British gentlemen uh, reading some of the craziest and, and uh, filthiest things you've ever heard in your life. Well, in the film. Uh, some of the filthiest, nastiest things uh, about other people in the bar and the, the women in it and what they want to do to them in these like a very posh, uh, upper crust sounding voices and then translating what all of that means uh, to the group so they can figure out their plan. 
Uh, and I want to go a little bit off track and talk. I don't really talk a whole lot about the soundtrack of, of the movies that I talk about on here, but I absolutely love the soundtrack of this film. If nothing else, uh, Heidi and, and the people behind the film have a good ear for music and for tone. The majority of the uh, soundtrack is uh, pop songs. You know, but as uh, someone who grew up in the 80s, someone who likes the uh, you know, alternative sounds from the 80s and the, and the 90s and some of the new way from, from uh, that time, oh my God, I love this soundtrack. Any, any soundtrack that uses two songs from the B-52s and neither one of them is Love Shack uh, gets a thumbs up for me and shows that you're actually doing, putting some effort into putting a soundtrack uh, from that time period together. Yeah, uh, of course it wouldn't be a heist comedy if their plan went off without a hitch, uh, and it doesn't. And here I think is, is the, one of the parts of the film that I have the most trouble with is uh, Eddie and the uh, Tommy and the, the driver. Paul doesn't get involved with it. He doesn't like using guns, and he's the one who caused the original job to kind of get messed up. But they go into Deacon's pub and start shooting it up, trying to get the blue iguana from him. And you've got, uh, I think if I counted right, like seven people in a British pub and not that big of an area, but there's so many bullets flying, people less than 10 feet apart and nobody gets hit. I mean, they even have the element of surprise coming into the bar and they got to fire a hundred, 150 bullets in this one action sequence and one person gets shot, I think. No, two people get shot. Uh, I, th- I think, uh, if I remember right, Tommy shoots one of uh, Deacon's guys, and then Deacon himself gets shot at point-blank range by Eddie, who at this point in the film is some kind of like uh, you know, Superman. He can plan. Uh, he knows how to set explosives. Uh, you know, He's a good fighter. He's ex-military. You know, all this stuff, and point-blank range, and he just shoots Deacon in the arm as Deacon has a gun on him. But, uh, yeah, they get, get the diamond. Uh, unfortunately, Eddie gets captured. And then, of course, they have to come up with a plan to get Eddie back and the diamond and get the diamond to the princess and get the money out without uh, the gangster finding out and without Deacon stopping them. Uh, and I, I really did like the last part of the movie, the, the uh, climax and everything, especially, uh, especially how they get out of the hotel unnoticed. Uh, I don't really want to spoil it except to say that uh, they don't, they're not very clean by the time the transaction and uh, Deacon ambushing them and everything goes, uh, goes through. But luckily there's a film that's uh, being shot at the hotel and they're able to sneak out by using that as cover. So the people don't look at them twice despite uh, their injuries and whatnot. So I don't know. I want to, Here's the thing about this film. I don't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it as much as I did Kill Me Three Times. This film, on a a certain level, annoys me because there's so much in it that it's so close to being a great heist comedy film. Uh, It's got, like I said, it's got several hilarious scenes in it. Uh, It's got the right quirkiness to some of the characters, but there's so many areas of it that I think the, uh, you know, I think, Hadi uh, just sort of phoned it in or just didn't think it was that important. I mean, he talks about the films he is inspired by. And 
stylistically, I think he got it right. If he was using these these films specifically as an inspiration, however, I don't think he really took what he needed to from them. Uh, you know, one of the things that Eddie does throughout the film come, becomes a reoccurring thing is he's reading a graphic novel of this knight trying to save a princess from this great evil. And the parallels between that and uh, what happens between him and Catherine in the film is very obvious. But it's never really commented on other than people notice him reading it or him telling somebody to leave the book alone. And it's a very generic uh, fantasy comic. You know, the knight fights a dragon, the knight fights a wizard, etc., etc. There's nothing really notable about it. And that's it, obviously influenced by Richard Gere's character from Breathless who was a big Silver Surfer fan. But in Breathless, it, it, he actually expands upon it about what he likes about the character, why he likes comic books, you know, why he does, you know, why he reads them. So it becomes a character point, and it's never really expanded out into that with Eddie. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, Eddie, there's points in the movies you wonder why they, you know, why Phoebe, I mean, why uh, Catherine, sorry, Phoebe's the actress, why Catherine bothers with anyone else because... Like I said, Eddie can fight. Uh, he knows how to build bombs. He's, uh, well, he's not a good shot. He only manages to hit like two people in the entire movie. But, you know, he can do all these things. Even at the end, he's the one who uh, talks them past the police. He's the one who does the fast talk and, uh, you know, gets them past the police so that they don't get arrested despite looking the way they do leaving the hotel. And to me, that was, to me, that was one of the biggest flubs of the film. Because throughout the film, we're shown that Paul, played by Ben Schwartz, is basically the mouth. You know, like if, if they're a duo, which, you know, they keep establishing that they are. You know, they went to prison together. They worked with uh, British Tommy before. You know, there's that dynamic that Eddie is, you know, he might be the one who plans. He might be the muscle. But you're given the idea throughout the entire film that Paul is the mouth. And that's a great character for Ben Schwartz. I mean, that's a no-brainer because that's the kind of characters that he he's, uh, seems to excel at. I mean, come on. John Rolfio in Parks and Rec, that's him. Is you know, let's, let's, uh, let, let's scam people out of stuff. Uh, he, he even seduces Deacon's mom uh, throughout the film in order to try to get more information and, and get a little better look at the inside of the pub. So you set him up for this, and then... In the key moment, in the moment where, okay, this is this character's time to shine, you know, talking them past the police, and, and he's the one who found out about the film being made there, all that, he freezes up, and Eddie steps in and does it. And it sort of brings up the whole idea of why is he even in the film? I mean, literally, why, you know, Paul, throughout the film, he he just seems like he doesn't want to be a criminal there's several moments where yeah i mean he does the talking he does the seducing of deacon's mom uh you know he finds out different things but very much has nothing to do brings nothing to the table he doesn't like using a gun he doesn't like being violent it even seems i even wonder why he went to prison as as he seems to be so against being a criminal or doing anything illegal I don't understand the point of the character. I feel like it that could have been I feel like he could have been handled a little bit better and I think that would have made the movie better. Uh just like at the beginning I don't understand why they have to be on parole and that has to be a plot point. 
because literally past the point of her blackmailing their boss, and I think one mention of they can't stay in England too long because uh, they have to get back before their parole officer figures out that they've skipped the country, it's never really a plot point. You know, there's never any tension to it. There's never any anything other than just a couple of throwaway lines, which I didn't understand. Why, you know, which made me maybe one maybe wonder and and just not understand why they had to be on parole in the first place. Why he couldn't just start with, you know, uh, Catherine showing up and hey, British Tommy says you two are good for a job. Let's go to uh, England. Yeah, uh, and again, British Tommy's another example of I think how they they the, the writer you know how uh, Hajay put too much on Eddie when. Like I said, a good heist film like this, you need a team. You need different people to do different jobs. That's why you have more than one person doing it. And the dynamic, looking at the pictures and looking at different parts of the film, it seems to be that, that, you know, uh, Eddie's the leader and the muscle. Paul is the uh, talker. Catherine is the money and the brains. Uh, British Tommy is the one with the connections. Like I said, he brings his family in. Uh, to get stuff done for it, and then you got a driver, but then so much of it gets sunk on Eddie that uh, you know even even Tommy just sort of outside of oh yeah my uncle can translate Cockney slang for us doesn't really seem to serve a purpose other than an extra body. Uh, and as I've said, I couldn't even tell you the name of the character who was the driver or uh, the actor that played him because other than one scene where you find out in dialogue that uh, Paul wants to be a filmmaker or passes himself off as a filmmaker and that the driver was one of the, you know, come down to him and Elijah Wood to play Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's it. That That's his entire character right there. Uh, and honestly, I think the handling of Paul is the, especially compared to what they did with Deacon and with his mom and, uh, you know, Eddie and, and the scenes between him and Catherine, the way their character is built, I really think the film does the biggest disservice to Paul. Uh, and especially, I love the scenes between him and, uh, I keep calling her Deacon's mom, what is her name? Dawn, where he's seducing her and just the blatant lies he's getting away with because he's so charming and he's so much the con man. He's so much the mouth of the group. And uh, and talking about it just makes me even angrier looking back at how they handled the, the uh, climax of the film. So, you know, we come to the part where I'm just going to go ahead and let's, let's answer the most important question you could ever ask of a movie. Was it entertaining? Uh, I got to go with yeah, but. And the but is, it really feels like, you know, here's the thing with movies where one person has multiple uh, jobs behind the scenes. You know, usually when you see director, writer, producer, and it's one person's name, the vast majority of the time is going to be, to me, it's not going to be a very good movie. There are exceptions to that. I mean, even looking back over uh, previous episodes, The Love Witch, you know, uh, it was one person wrote, directed, produced, even did some of the set design and costumes, but it is a wonderful, you know, great movie. It's one I want to watch again uh, because somebody had that singular vision this one, not so much. I honestly feel like, uh, you know, they they could have done another couple of passes on the script. 
I feel like if they brought in somebody else to sort of read it and touch it up, that some of the things I've talked about wouldn't be a problem. Uh, so, yeah, it's entertaining. Could it be better, a lot better, with just a few tweaks? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it, and I think that's what frustrates me, is this film is so close to being a, a good heist comedy. It's a great cast. The interaction between them is is wonderful. Uh, the the central plot, I think there's a few complications, too many. It, it gets a little too twisted. And some of the stuff that you think should be important turns out not to be. And not in a red herring kind of way, just as more of a, oh, I think we forgot about that at some point kind of way. And, yeah. And that's it. it, it it's good, and it's so close to being great. That it, it to me it just makes it worse that it's just good with this cast, uh, with with the uh, the moments in it that did make me laugh out loud, with the soundtrack, with the obvious amount of love that went into it, just falls short. So, you know, right there at the finish line, you know, it, it comes down to it's good, but it's not one that I'm going to watch again. You know, this is this is definitely a, a DVD that's going back to goodwill uh if you'd like to check it out uh, it is currently as of the time of recording this uh available on uh fubo hoopla crackle plex and popcorn flicks uh or if you'd like to rent it i think it's also available to rent through uh, amazon apple uh, redbox you know the usual suspects kind of kind of thing so uh, that's going to wrap it up this week for uh, Celluloid Fever Dreams. I have been Wyndham Jennings, and will continue to be so even after uh, this episode is over. Uh, next week, we're in the home stretch of our dollar movie finds with Terry Gilliam's The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, uh, Heath Ledger's final film, also starring Christopher Plummer, Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and Colin Farrell. Uh, this is the first Terry Gilliam movie that we're going to be talking about on the podcast. It's not going to be the last. I love Terry Gilliam. Uh, several of his films are among my all-time favorites, and uh, including Brazil. Brazil will probably be the next Terry Gilliam uh, movie we talk about. Uh, not going to say when. I've, I've looking at the list. There's a few I want to get to before we get to that one. I still got to finish up this series. We still got. Uh, three more movies in it so uh if you can wherever you listen to us through or download us from go back and leave us a like and review don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes uh if you liked what you heard tell a friend if you didn't tell an enemy uh if you'd like to tell me more about what i could be doing right what i'm doing wrong uh, suggest a film correct something that i got wrong uh you can find me on twitter at cfeverdreams Find me on TikTok at Celluloid Fever Dreams. Uh, also, Celluloid Fever Dreams for Instagram. So uh, go out there, have yourself a good week. Uh, be kind to yourself. Uh, be kind to others. Uh, like what you like. There is no guilty pleasures. Like the films, the movies, the music, the books, whatever. Like it. Own it. Uh, who cares? I uh, hope to see you again here next week. Uh, until then, I have been Wyndham Jennings, and uh, I'll save you a seat as long as you keep bringing the snacks. Good night, everybody.